0: transfusion protocol is something that we activate when somebody's critically bleeding. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, if somebody's got a severe like thoracic or abdominal or pelvic or m- multiple long bone trauma, uh, it could be a major obstetric case or a gastrointestinal or surgical bleeding. Um, yeah, most common patients needing a massive transfusion protocol are trauma, uh, gastrointestinal bleeds, uh, hemoptysis is common as well or an osteopageal varices. Uh, or an obstetric patient, like a postpartum hemorrhage. So it was a Monday afternoon, uh, it was about 6pm. Uh, yeah, uh, so ambulance and retrieval were called to a work site at 3.30pm uh, and they were called to a pedestrian that was a uh, pedestrian versus bobcat. It was a two ton bobcat, which is like a tractor, and that's run over the patient's legs. Um, The injuries on scene that the paramedics turned up to was uh, extensive right lower limb degloving and near amputation of the right ankle, also large laceration from the right gluteus down to below the knee, so the whole back of the thigh, Um, a query fractured pelvis and femur, and then a large abrasion to the pelvis and some chest pain of these types of patients it's called a code crimson so they activated a code crimson pre-hospital and that meant that we could uh, then prepare for this patient I was 55 on 33 and that was despite having a liter and a half of fluid and those um, what did he have so three so he'd already had 10 units of blood um, oh. and he had a blood pressure of 55. So we implemented the blood coordinator role, which was a single person in ED that was responsible for blood management.
1: Welcome to the ED Jam. What up ED Jam frothers? Welcome to the podcast. Maybe this is the first time you've heard my voice, and guess what? It won't be the last. Um, Welcome to the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Um, today, I'm chatting to Daniel Van Voiced. You're going to love it. You just heard the preview. It was epic. Um, sorry, I've been a bit slow. Um, sometimes when I'm not sure what to do with posting podcasts, I sort of chill out and think about it. Um, so, anyway, um, I've been down in Melbourne, I've been down the wave pool. It was freaking awesome. Uh, I actually got to run into uh, Ned, who was running uh, across Australia. That was epic. Um, and I love people that do things like that. Um, so, it just motivates me too. Um, So if you're struggling for motivation, um, go check him out. He's awesome. Um, Yeah, I just want to say if you're not following me on Instagram, do it if you want to. If you don't, it's cool, but I want you to. Um, (laughs) uh, Anyway, um, we're going to get into the podcast um, and I just wanted to tell you all that you are awesome. You're amazing. You're great people. Uh, If you work in any sort of emergency services, you're doing a great job. It's been tough. um, It's hard, but uh, you always do it with a smile. Uh, or a rude joke or something else. So while we're touching on motivation, I just want to do a quick shout out to Ozzy. Uh, Austin, mate, you are an absolute legend. Um, You're still inspiring me um, every day since the time I've met you, mate. Um, Yeah, so often not when we work in emergency we work as a paramedic, a doctor, a nurse, we come across patients that that really touch us in a special way. Um, And I just wanted to say whether or not you're the first person to treat someone or the last, um, just remember that they need you um i always remind myself day in day out that i'm standing on the other side of the bed um and i have a privilege to look after people um but aussie you are awesome um and you're motivating and i swear if i did a blood test on you um your motivation level would be critically high uh, and i'd have the lab calling me um for a critically high result just because you're such a legend mate um so keep going strong um and keep you know being yourself mate you're a legend Anyway, let's crack in. You're awesome. You. Um, you. Welcome to the podcast. Um, this week I'm chatting to um, Daniel Van Voist, um, and we're chatting about um, MTP and about blood products and a few different things. So, Daniel, welcome to the podcast, bro.
0: Thanks, Ben. I'm excited to be here.
1: You. Um, I met you, this is probably going back a bit, I think I met Daniel, we were both teaching at a local university, um, third year nursing students and I met you um, and was interested, like was drawn to you, especially being working in ED, I was like, bro, I want to have a chat with you. Um, So Dan, what do you do for work, mate? Tell us what you do.
0: Yeah, well, I'm an emergency nurse. I'm currently working as an acting clinical nurse consultant in a large uh, emergency department in a metro hospital in Sydney. Uh, so I work there full time, but I'm also still working at that uni where we met. Uh, so I just uh, one day a week as a second job because I just I love educating new nurses on how to become nurses, and I always try and spruik emergency to them as well because I think it's the best place to work. Yeah,
1: hundred percent. You are speaking my language, bro. <clears throat> I yeah. love. I think there's something about emergency nurses. Um, we generally are pretty passionate about learning and teaching as well. I think most of us. So it's cool. Yeah. Now, Dan. Um, How long have you been working in emergency for, bro? I've
0: been here for 12 years now. Um, I I did some time when I was working at a different hospital as an after-hours educator, which was really great because I used to go to all the arrest calls and help the junior staff um, whenever they needed a hand. And that was a really great autonomous role. Uh, But then I come back to my home in an, an emergency department, which, yeah, I really loved. So I did clinical nurse educator for about five years in the ED and then now doing the CNC role for two years. And I'm really loving. Yeah, it's really good.
1: That's good. What drew you initially to emergency, Dan?
0: Uh, I think the fast pace also, I was very ambitious at the start of my career. So being able to learn as much as I could and I thought, oh, ED, I can learn all of the skills uh, that that you need to look after any patient anywhere. And that really helped me, especially in that after hours role that I was in. But yeah, just being able to keep learning, pushing myself, progressing through the different areas through PEDS, resource, Triage. And then once I was in Resus, I just... I just loved it. All the critical care, the trauma. I really am passionate about trauma education, like I said, but then also I like disaster nursing as well. Uh, I've even been able to be deployed with my disaster nursing, and that's always a great opportunity. Just the variety that you get to see and do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, <clears throat> so good, bro. Like, just makes such a difference when you realize just the autonomy you can have from studying ED. You really can work in so many different areas. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's great. Yeah, awesome bro. Now you've recently come back from a conference you were presenting, am I right, on a specific topic? And we're gonna jump into that topic. What were you talking about at the coast, mate?
0: Uh, So I was talking about uh, massive transfusion protocols. Um, So not just for trauma, but all emergency department patients and about a role that we implemented in the emergency department that I work in called the blood coordinator role. Yeah, so that's what I spoke on and I'm happy to go into more depth with it with you now, yeah.
1: You're stoked, man. Um, so, for anyone who works out there uh, in emergency departments, um, we've heard of these these three letters MTP. Um, Dan, what does MTP stand for, bro? Yeah,
0: so it stands for a massive transfusion protocol. Sounds pretty hectic. Uh huh. <laughs> so pretty much, yeah, massive transfusion. Uh, massive transfusion protocol is something that we activate when somebody's critically bleeding. Okay mm. so um if somebody's got a severe like thoracic or abdominal or pelvic or m- multiple long bone trauma uh, it could be a major obstetric case or a gastrointestinal or surgical bleeding um yeah most common patients needing a massive transfusion protocol are trauma uh, gastrointestinal bleeds a hemoptysis is common as well or an esophageal varices uh or an obstetric patient like a postpartum hemorrhage
1: yeah wow um and if anyone's seen the mtp we'll talk about how to activate that in a second um have in your clinical expertise dan have you activated the mtp before yourself
0: yeah many times yeah yep. and the yep. patient is in resus. uh we sometimes activate it based on a hospital pre-notification that someone's already critically bleeding uh if retrieval have already used blood products and the patient's still you know, in domani- hemodynamically unstable, uh, then we might activate it early. Uh, but then yeah, we assess our patients. And then if they're requiring, we think, more than four units of blood in an hour, then we're going to need to activate this transfusion. But we do it in uh, layers and with the doctors as well.
1: Yeah, cool. Um, so Dan, for anyone out there, um how does MTP get activated? Um, yeah. In your, yeah, so in your- so
0: once we recognize that a patient requires one, then we'll call blood bank. Uh, so we have the phone number plastered around the resource room of how to call blood bank, and then that person making the call will say, can I please activate a massive transfusion protocol. We need to give the patient details so the blood bank can uh, start thawing and providing the blood, and then we send a wardsman down to blood bank who will go and pick it up, because they've got to pick up a large amount, so it won't go through a Lansing tube or anything. Uh, They go and pick it up and, uh, yeah, the blood bank starts thawing things like the fresh frozen plasma so that we can get a range of blood products for our patients.
1: Dan, what's in a massive transfusion protocol? So what um, products do we have inside the MTP?
0: Yeah, so when we call for an MTP, the first shipment that will arrive will include four red blood cell units and then four units of FFP, so your fresh frozen plasma then uh, we have to have constant communication with blood bank about how we're progressing with that if we transfuse those eight products uh, then the next shipment that we ask for will come with another four of red cells another four of ffp and then it'll actually come with five bags of cryoprecipitate which has your fibrinogen in it for clotting factors and it'll have one unit of pooled platelets Um, then pretty much if you're continuing on with these critically bleeding patients uh, the third shipment will have another four red, four yellow, so FFP, and then five precipitate, And then the next one will come with four red, four yellow, five cryo, and then another platelets. And that keeps repeating um, to make sure that you're getting uh, pretty much a one-to-one ratio of red blood cells with FFP and also getting some fibrinogen into your patient with that precipitate, and then some platelets as well.
1: Awesome. So not only fill your patient back up, but also help with those clotting factors as well, which is important when you're losing blood.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's evidence that shows that um, there's increased mortality if you're giving too much red cells compared compared to giving clotting factors. So yeah, your mortality is higher if you're giving just too many red cells without those clotting factors to try and help stop the bleeding as well.
1: Awesome. So Dan, if it's that easy to get all this blood, you know, we make a phone call, we get all these blood products pretty easily. Then what's the why do we um you know why have you you know, started to have this blood coordinator role. Um, What has happened in the past to make you sort of get this role up and running?
0: Yeah, so we noticed uh, in the department that I'm working in that we were having high numbers of blood product wastage. Um, There were also some clinical incidences happening coming through uh, the incident management system about administration errors. Because like I said, there's lots of blood products being administered in a short amount of time. So there is a high rate of error uh, or risk of error. And then also when our patients were moving from ED to either theatre uh, rapidly because these patients need uh, urgent intervention to be able to stop the bleeding, not, a, not just replace the blood, uh, or they need to go to uh, CT for investigation of where they're bleeding from. When these patients were transferring out of the ED, we were noticing that uh, blood was either being left on the table in the ED or it was being taken to CT or theatre and then not put back in a blood fridge or not sent back to blood bank if it was no longer used. Uh, so we're noticing high uh, wastage rates with those sorts of things happening.
1: Mm. And these products are pretty important to come by. Hey, like people go and donate blood so that we can have access to it to save patients' lives.
0: Yeah, that's right. Like they do cost money, but then uh, apart from money, they they're freely donated by the public. And so you want to be able to use this vital resource. And you hear about shortages in blood availability, so you want to make sure you're not wasting it. Um, to save costs for the hospital but also to make sure that you're using a vital resource appropriately
1: Mm. yeah if anyone if you could paint a picture dan let's just say you do get it let's just give you an example you've got you know a big mva or 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 even just a trauma patient who you know is requiring a lot of blood, blood products um what does the room look like you've got a lot of people in there hey
0: Yeah, there's heaps of people in there. So for example, say trauma would probably be the most common case. Uh, You're gonna have a ED medical officer uh, as the team leader coordinating that resuscitation. Uh, Then usually we'll have the intensive care team come down to manage the airway, sometimes anesthetic if it's a difficult airway. And then you're gonna have a surgical or trauma registrar doing the procedures type role. Uh, Along with medical staff, you've got your nursing staff. So you have a nursing scribe who also does the team leader role for nursing. You've got a procedure nurse and then you've got an airway nurse. When you're adding on a massive transfusion protocol, your procedure nurse will have to be giving those bloods and uh, responsible for the blood administration. But then if your patient's needing other procedures, you always need to have an extra nurse coming in. So we were noticing that, yeah, you need extra staff when there's a massive transfusion protocol because there's lots of procedures needing to be done alongside giving the blood.
1: Yeah. And it's and in a big resource, it's so easy to leave, you know, your blood on the table or, you, you know, the, you're running off to do something can, or CT, like you said before, and then someone runs in and leaves a platelets on the, you know, on the bench or leaves the blood there. Uh, yeah, and then you go to theatre and you've left them on the bench.
0: Yeah, it might not be at the forefront of your mind. If someone's critically bleeding, you might be holding pressure to stop that bleeding or something's happening with the patient's airway and we know that airway is the priority. So we get sidetracked doing the most important things in the primary survey uh, and then the blood just gets left there while you're trying to get the patient ready for their definitive care.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, Dan. Um, How often do you use the MTP in your hospital? Just for example, roughly, how often would you see it activated?
0: Yeah, we see it activated uh, once every week. So it doesn't sound yeah. like a lot, only once a week. But when you look at that, yeah, it's four times per month. And like over a six-month period, you're looking at about, yeah, 16 to 25 MTPs. Um, yeah, so it is a it is a big number. And like I with every MTP, it's not just a couple of blood products that you're giving. You're giving a lot, sometimes up to 100 blood products and units of blood. So it is a, a big thing when we do it
1: talk me through your this um study that you've been doing tell me a little bit about it and what you found from your um investigation and what was the role actually
0: yeah well we looked at it uh early 2021 and over a six-month period we saw that 83 units of blood products were wasted during mtps in my department and the total cost for that works out to being seventeen thousand dollars. um also we had a clinical incidences for the patients. um, And we want to reduce them as well, because we don't want to have any harm for any patients uh, receiving blood products. So we pretty much looked at reducing the blood wastage during a massive transfusion in the ED by 20% by September um, later that year. Um, So we're hoping to reduce the wastage and reduce um, clinical incidences. We liaised with key stakeholders. ed medical and ed nursing respect with blood bank ward orderly theater staff and we looked into the process from the recognition of a patient requiring an mtp until the patient was handed over out of the ed or the mtp was ceased to be able to identify potential areas for improvement so did cool. a around that yeah
1: yeah did were there any people that weren't available to finish that study Did you have exclusion inclusion criteria or mainly when it was activated it was more about the role of that mtp coordinator
0: yeah, we didn't exclude any patients. If an MTP was activated when we tried to, uh, yeah, we looked into the wastage there and the incidents there, and then our aim was to implement changes so that uh, for every MTP to mm. see if we could improve things. Yeah.
1: With the role of that person, did you find it beneficial?
0: Yeah. So a, a few of the things that we tried first. So the first thing we implemented was a sticker. So blood bank were putting a cold chain sticker on the blood product form that was coming to ED. Uh, where they'd write the time that it was the blood product was removed from their fridge so that we could see an ED, oh, okay, we've got 30 minutes to either transfuse this into the patient or put it into our blood fridge if we weren't going to use it. Um, mm. That was coming some of the times, and then our staff weren't looking at other times, so that wasn't really working. So then we tried something else, and we actually, with the MTP shipment from Blood Bank, Uh, we created an Esky, which had a timer on it, which was set for Mm -hmm. 25 minutes. And that timer alarms when there's five minutes left. uh, And that highlights to the ED staff in a noisy environment, they could hear this alarm and be like, okay, I need to either transfuse this product or put it back in the fridge. And that showed to be working and we were getting a reduced wastage and better cold chain management. But then another thing we were noticing was blood bank uh, were getting a bit Uh, not upset, but like it was a bit of miscommunication between ED and blood bank because we had multiple staff members calling them to activate Mm -hmm. an MDP. So we implemented the blood coordinator role, which was a single person in ED that was responsible for blood management. Um, We gave them a phone. We actually painted the phone red uh, with paint Mm -hmm. so that it's easily identifiable. Uh, Blood bank knew the number. And then as soon as... uh, Massive transfusion protocol was activated, we would get the staff member to pick up that phone and be the, the contact for Blood Bank. They'd be able to continue asking for repeat shipments once we needed more, or they could also tell Blood Bank that we could uh stop having the um the trans- the massive transfusion being thawed for us. Other things that we gave that person to help them, we gave them some training. So we gave them a learning package, we gave them an uh ID card and action card, which uh outlined their roles and responsibilities. Uh, and then we also created them a, a whiteboard that was portable that you could take to whichever recess bay the massive transfusion protocol was happening in, and they could use that to tally how many products have been transfused. That made it mm. clear to communicate to the team leader uh, what has gone into the patient, also to the scribe nurse, so that we could improve our documentation of what products had been transfused.
1: Yeah, that's really cool, Dan. I love the timer. In my previous workplace, we had a timer with an Esky on it. And I love that um, mindset of just going off a little bit earlier to to pre-warn you that, you know, we've got to do something with this product and make a decision. Yeah, Um, that's right. Yeah, and I also love what you said then about, um, you know, having a whiteboard and tallying. Because, I I mean, I'm sure people listening out there, you know, you you have a big resource, even in trauma, and then someone goes, oh, we've had, you know, let's just say we've had five, um You know, red cells are gone in or whatever. And then you sort of look on the bench and there's like seven of them there. <laughs>
0: so, yeah. No, yeah, I, I, I
1: think we've had seven. You know? Yeah.
0: And like the person giving the blood would say, Oh, I've just given it another unit of blood. And then the, the scribe would be like, Oh, what number was that? Oh, how many have yeah. we had? And if it's just tallied clear for everyone to see, uh, it's much easier for everyone. Yeah.
1: Awesome. That's really good, Dan. That's, um, so was that job um assigned to a, a registered nurse?
0: Yeah, so it can be done by anyone uh, in the resource. So pretty much what happens if someone's identified as needing an MTP, usually we need to get a team together. So like I said, nursing-wise, it includes a scribe nurse, who's also the nursing team leader, a procedure nurse, and an airway nurse. If there's an MTP being activated, then the one of the resource nurses needs to contact the nursing unit manager, so the NUM or the in-charge that's on that shift, and say, we're activating an MTP. Could you please allocate us a blood coordinator? So that could be a nurse not working in recess that day, or it could be another nurse in recess. And so that there's actually not just those three roles, there's four roles. There's a scribe, procedure, airway, and blood coordinator role. Uh, It sometimes is the trauma CNC that uh, fulfills that role or trauma CNS after hours, um, as we have in our facility. And they also receive training on this role. So whoever was available to do that role, it was actually a dedicated role for MTPs. uh, And that person wasn't just responsible for contacting blood bank, but they were also trained on the Belmont rapid infuser, and they would transfuse the blood into the patient, making sure Ooh. that the patient had adequate um, P- like, uh, PIVCA access. If it's on a small cannula, they'd move it to the large cannula once that was put in, or they'd move it from an intraosseous needle into a um, cannula or a MAC line once that was implement- like introduced into the patient. They were just responsible to make sure that the patient received the blood rapidly um, and safely
1: it. Okay. so they not only were responsible for the coordination, but also for the administration of the blood products.
0: Yeah, that's right. And that was well, just because, yeah, they had time to do that in their role, uh, improving communication, cold chain management, and also the administration. Yeah.
1: Hmm. What did you find um, were some difficulties of that role? Or do you think that most of them found that it was so good to be able to be in a different position to step back a little bit?
0: Uh, One of the difficulties with the project was actually getting a staff member allocated to be able to fill that role um, because of staffing issues and everything, Uh, but then once there was a person allocated for that it did seem better because usually you'd have a couple of people trying to do different parts of it and then get missed or they'd feel like oh I'm I'm just giving this unit of blood and I really need to transfer to the over to the next unit but their surgeons are helping I'm trying to help the surgeon put in this chest drain and like being pulled to different things having their key tasks that they needed to do and what they're responsible for gave them the time to make sure that that they were doing that well and properly and then the procedure nurse could then focus on those other tasks such as chest drain management etc.
1: Okay. That's good. Good to know. Cause you're right. You do get called, you know, even if you're called away, like let's say you're in an airway position and you know, the airway is not completely, you know, maybe you've just tube them or, you know, and you, they're like, okay, quick next. And you, you, they're trying to pull you out of your position. Like, Hey, I've got to get them on the van. I've got to maximize the settings. You know what I mean? Like it, it, yeah, it's right. so often in a resource, but you get pulled in so many different directions.
0: Yeah. And giving um, blood via a rapid infuser, it's a full-time job. If you've ever, yeah. ever done it, like the Belmont that we have, uh, so the rapid infuser that we have in our department, it can give blood at a rate of 750 mils per minute. So if you think about that, that's at least three units of blood in a minute. That's, you just need to be there giving that blood. So um, yeah, you don't really have time to do other things.
1: Yeah, it's so true. hey. And making sure, like you said before, making sure it's running in the right line and there's nothing kinking that line or making sure that, you know, blood's not pissing out all over the floor, you know, like little things like that's not right, making
0: which we've all seen happen.
1: Yeah. 100%. Those are things that are really important. Um, that's interesting, Dan. Um, yeah. And, mate, have you seen, like, I guess the role was brought out because of, you know, some errors. What were what yeah. some of those errors that you saw initially um, before you started to use this coordinator role?
0: Yeah, so um, just mainly, uh, like some of the errors were related to wastage again, such as um, cryo precipitate being put back into our blood fridge when the MTP was no longer required and cryo okay. can't go back in the fridge, that means it'll be destroyed. Uh, in regards to patient incidences, um, just yeah, the blood products being transfused. Uh, when they didn't, they were no longer needed. So uh, the person that was doing it was so caught up in doing other tasks that the team leader was just like, oh no, you didn't need to give that fourth unit of blood that was in the shipment because the patient's now he- hemodynamically stable and uh, we didn't need them to have that unit. Um, and that's mm-hmm. just because no one was really focusing on the role and i feel like with this role that person can have a good communication with the team leader okay i've given three units now are you happy for the fourth or do you want me to wait for a bit it looks like this is the blood pressure now and looking at those sorts of things so yep. we've improved on those incidents um since implementing this role yeah
1: mm. and dan just for um for myself and for other people out there um the mtp is generally the the like uncrossmatched blood um, is that correct? And then if you that's were to correct. get a sample back that was cross match, you could then could change over to cross match blood. Is that right? Is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah that's correct. Yeah, we, get, we have a blood fridge in our department which has uh, six units of uncross match blood. So we can start giving that, but it's, the sooner we activate an MTP, the better, because then we'll obviously get FFP or an extended life plasma and platelets and cryoprecipitate, which has your clotting factors, which we need. But yeah, it does come initially from blood bank um, uncross-matched until we've sent a sample off a group and hold and cross-match to the lab uh, and once that's back then the blood bank can start sending us cross-matched blood as well
1: awesome did you get any questions about your study and about the position of staff um, that you're working with
0: yeah definitely uh, the main questions were how are we going to do this it's an extra role we don't have time it's very busy uh, we're already really busy in a case like this but it was um, just spread out to them clearly that it's an extra position that will be coming to do this role, which will alleviate stress and your other roles that you're doing uh, because it's got an action card and you've got clear things that you need to do. And, and we all know in a busy resus case, that if there's a way of reducing cognitive load, um, mm. then you wanna go along that path. And so we brought it up in lots of forums and we tailored the role to being what staff thought would work we didn't just say this is what we want you to do this is what we're doing now we actually had forums with the staff speaking to them how do you think this is going to work we networked with trauma and blood bank like i said Um, and then we got lots of people involved in reviewing the learning package and the action card and the roles and all those different things that we implemented they were all different ideas from different staff members on how we could make this a more robust and comprehensive role that is going to work and be sustainable as well
1: Yeah, I love what you said there about sustainability because it's all well and good to have a position, let's just say you get some funding for it, but when that dries up it's important that you've also not only implemented something good but that it's been a change in practice because that's the key isn't it like, you're not only trying to save money you're trying to implement good practices for better patient care.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the things that some of the staff said, oh, why can't the trauma nurse when they come, they can just do that role. But massive transfusion protocols are not just for trauma. They're for obs and gynae patients. They're for yeah. like uh, medical patients, surgical patients. And also um, it might not be in the hours that the trauma nurse is working. So we need to yeah. be out of self-sustaining uh, model in the emergency department
1: yeah i love that it's so true and also i was a trauma case manager before i came to another hospital and sometimes you've got competing interests like you might have a big trauma going that required that you get called to uh and they might have stabilized and you've got someone who's upstairs you've been paid that they've called you to a pay score for a, you know a chest strain that's dislodged or you know or something else or yeah. you know a patient who's studying standing on the ward you know that's an outlier on another ward that you rush up to because you know that ed are Organised and they're really well skilled and they've got, you know, the, the resources to manage. So yeah, it is
0: and like with the action card, it means that they can be handed over as well. If somebody needed to leave that role because of a high yeah. demand elsewhere, somebody else could jump into that role easily because all staff have been trained on it.
1: Yeah. Mm. Dan, talk to me about the personal factors that happen in a resource. Like I know it's a bit of an off topic, but the, like we talk about, you know, communication being really important and you mentioned it as being a big cause of like, you know, some errors or even just some misadministration. What have you noticed in your clinical experience when it comes to those personal factors in a resuscitation bay?
0: Yeah, I guess things that I notice in larger resuscitations is there's sometimes a loud volume, lots of people doing their own thing and focusing on their tasks, and it's also People can get sidetracked and not um, remember to use closed-loop communication. Um, I always find that it's the best if you have a clearly identified team leader that has oversight of the entire recess so as not to be pulled into doing different procedures. They can keep going through and get little reports from the mini-teams. For example, they'll speak to the airway team and say, can you give me an update on the airway? Can you give me an update on um, the procedures or the secondary survey or whatever they're up to? And also going through and rehashing and then asking the staff in the room, what are your thoughts? Is there anything else you think that we could do? Uh, I feel like the resources that seem more chaotic are the ones where everyone's loud, everyone's rushing around doing their own thing. Um, But the ones that are, it's just so much better if you have a clear team leader that is directing it uh, and keeps it calm. And that makes everyone feel like they have a better outcome at the end. And even if the patient wasn't to have a good outcome, you feel like you've done what you can for that patient and you don't feel as flustered. Because a, a large mm-hmm. case such as a thoracotomy or something, you're gonna feel flustered. But then if you've got a clear leader, um, that's gonna really help with those human factors and help yeah, everyone like feel like they're doing their job
1: better and know what they're doing yeah mm-hmm. in, in your experience dan how have you let's just say you've got a resource and i don't know it's a bit off topic but it's not running the way you want it to run how do you approach it dan like you're a senior clinician you've been in a lot like 12 years in emergency you know you've, you're talking about thoracotomies you've seen some big cases man uh yeah. and i know your hospital does see some crazy stuff uh day in day out it's not a quiet place to work yeah. um Which means that you would have seen a lot of resources run well and run some run not so well um how do you approach those ones that don't run as well
0: yeah well that's why i work here because it's crazy (laughs) See all the the big cases and that's what i love and being able to make a difference in that environment is just just really good and keeps you wanting to come back and do more um i guess uh, if it's not going to plan then yeah you just need to get everybody on the same page somehow so as you said i've been here for a long time so i feel like i can take that leadership role even if there's somebody else uh, allocated as the team leader if you feel like you can lead then you can be a part of that leadership and you can either speak to them one-on-one about getting everyone back on the same page or if it's not happening taking that role on myself so like you learn about greater assertiveness and probing and stuff that's a good skill to have in the recess room so just starting off small um, but if it's not working then really advocating for your patient and what you think is safe and no one later is going to uh, have a go at you for doing that if you are concerned about the safety of your patient uh, or the outcomes that are coming about of the case uh, then you need to speak up for them so never be shy to speak up for what you believe in in a case like that because we're all here to make sure that our patients have improved outcomes um and we want to we are all there for the patient when it comes down to it uh so Mm. that's what yeah that's what i recommend
1: yeah yeah what dan articulated here was amazing i had to stop the podcast just for a few seconds to digest it um you know i've been in a few resources and dan's probably been in a lot more than me um and i just loved what he said you know that We're there for the best interest of the patient. Sometimes our recesses run really well, and other times they don't. Um, A few things to think about, you know, if you've been in a recess and it hasn't run well, what were the things that made it not run well? Um, If you could think and articulate those things, it's really important, maybe write them down, maybe have a discussion with people who are in that resuscitation. Um, And vice versa, ones that have run really well, Try and focus on the good things and see what that team leader or what that team did to make the resus run smoothly. Um, outcomes dependent or not. Um, it's also important to remember that sometimes our patients are going to have a poor prognosis anyway. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad resuscitation nurse just because they did that or a bad resuscitation doctor or paramedic. Um, it's really important to remember that. Um, the other thing is maybe you have been involved in a resus recently and it didn't run well. Uh, and you're thinking about it and it's on your mind, uh, and I'd really encourage you to, um, that you know, in your team to have a chat about it. Don't sit on it, don't dwell on it, um, have a chat. Uh, it's really important. And, you know, I've been in situations where I've been the distractor, been the one who's been too loud, and other times I've been the one asking someone to stop distracting us. So it, it's a team, um, we have good days and bad days, but we still gotta learn from it. Um, and we're not perfect. Um, But we are trying to get better and hopefully give our patients the best possible chance um, to survive with the best possible team and the best possible communication. You. Love it, Dan. Mate, when have you seen the MTP come to the rescue? Um, Now, yeah, I I guess for anyone out there, um, they may have or may not have seen blood save lives. Um, But when, in your experience, have you seen the MTP come to the rescue?
0: Yeah, well, I'll I'll tell you about a case that we had a few weeks ago. So um, it was a few months ago, actually. Uh, So we had a 44-year-old male um, who was back called into us. So back call is just uh, when the ambulance radio us ahead of um, time, telling us that we're going to be receiving a large case into our recess room. So it was a Monday afternoon. Uh, It was about, uh, yeah, 6pm. So. Ambulance and retrieval were called to a work site at 3.30pm, and they were called to a pedestrian that was a pedestrian versus bobcat. It was a two-ton bobcat, which is like a tractor, and that's run over the patient's legs. The injuries on scene that the paramedics turned up to was uh, extensive right lower limb degloving and near amputation of the right ankle. Also large laceration from the right gluteus down to below the knee, so the whole back of the thigh. Um, A query fractured pelvis and femur, and then a large abrasion to the pelvis and some chest pain. So very injured patient from this, um, this Bobcat encounter. Uh, when they arrived, uh, it looked like there was approximately a litre and a half of blood loss on the scene. The patient's blood pressure was 44, so had a systolic of 44. Respirate rate was 28, heart rate was 100. Uh, sets were fluctuating between 88 and 95%. Uh, but he had a GCS of 15, so he was still talking, but uh, he wasn't doing so well with that blood pressure of 44. His temperature was 34, so it was quite cold. Um, so... They did a bit of an assessment. They did an eFast, which was negative. And that's your uh, extended uh, sonography and trauma. So looking uh, with an ultrasound to see if there's any free fluid in the abdomen. Um, that was negative, so that was good. Uh, they put a pelvic binder and a hard collar on him. They gave him a litre and a half of fluid, uh, but then they also have some uh, blood products with them. They had three units of red cells and two units of extended life plasma. So they gave those five units of blood, Uh, they intubated the patient, gave him some tranexamic acid, uh, and then uh, they brought him to our hospital. Mm. We've actually got a good thing in our hospital where when we receive notifications, of these types of patients, it's called a code crimson. So they activated a code crimson pre-hospital and that meant that we could uh, then prepare for this patient. One way we prepare is by also liaising with the trauma consultant. So the ED consultant and the trauma consultant will talk to each other. They'll activate a code crimson here if they think the patient meets criteria. And then blood bank will actually send blood products up to the helipad. So our blood bank, had three units of red cells and two units of FFP present on the helipad when the patient arrived. So then when we received them down in ED, they already had some more blood transfusing. So that was great. Um, So anyway, I'll just go on with this case. So he arrived in the ED at about 10 past past six that night. Uh, He was just, I'll just go through a quick A to G. So he was intubated and ventilated. Uh, He had equal air entry and was ventilating well. His blood pressure on arrival was 55 on 33. And that was despite having the litre and a half of fluid and those, um, what did he have? So three, so he'd already had 10 units of blood um, oh. and by pressure of 55. Um, oh. his heart rate was 124 as well, so that it deteriorated. And he was oozing continuously from his thigh despite direct pressure on those wounds. Um, his GCS was now three as he was sedated and paralyzed. His temperature had gone down to 32.9 um, and then yeah, his e-fast here as well was negative again. So the main issue there is like his airway is settled. So his main issue is still his circulation and his critical bleeding that's causing that low blood pressure and that high heart rate. So the MTP was urgent. So as I said, we would activated that code crimson pre-hospital um, like, and then we activated the code crimson in our hospital, which means we call blood bank and activate that MTP. Our clerical mm. staff will register that patient with a code crimson MRN so that blood products can be dispensed without delay. And that's that's key um, because if you're having to wait for an MRN, that can delay blood transfusion for these patients. 100%. The blood coordinator was allocated in this um, case by the ED NUM as part of this trauma team. So there was a scribe nurse, airway nurse, procedure nurse, and a blood coordinator nurse. Um, so the blood coordinator got the phone, called Blood Bank, and said we need to continue this MTP. Um, as the blood pressure is still 55 and that was in liaison with the ED medical team leader. Uh, The coordinator prepared the rapid infuser before the patient arrived and then we also prepared lots of teams so anaesthetics were there, ortho were there, surgical fellow trauma consultant was on his way into the hospital and then we informed theatre and uh, interventional radiology as well. so once he was in the ED for a little bit, uh, we continued the MTP, his blood gas on arrival, his pH was 6.69, lactate 8.9, base excess minus 15. So this patient didn't have a very good looking gas, so he was really unwell, like really, really unwell. And like, I've seen people not go so well with those sorts of results. Oh, sure. Yeah. And especially, yeah, that blood pressure after those many units of blood and yeah, it was just getting colder and colder and yeah, that's a risk in trauma as well. You can bleed more and more the colder you get. Yeah, so, yeah, it was risky. Uh, we did it. We put in two large ball cannulas in the cubital fosses, which is good. Uh, he had a chest x-ray which showed multiple rib fractures, actually with a flail segment. But there was no pneumothorax or obvious hemothorax on the X-rays, so that was good. Uh pelvic X-ray showed that there could be a query acetabular fracture. So we kept the binder in situ. Um, and then by 6:30, um, they'd had their seventh unit of blood cells commenced. Um, mm-hmm. and that was infused by the rapid infuser. Um, he had a, yeah, definitely. Right ankle compound fracture and dislocation and right tibia comminuted tibial fracture as well. Uh, we put in uh, IO, there was an IO inserted as well as the two cubital fossa cannulas just for more access. He had an art line inserted, his leg was bandaged. We gave antibiotics and ADT, so tetanus booster. Uh, his right lower limb was tourniqueted to try and stop that bleeding. Uh, Then at 640, the second shipment of massive transfusion protocol arrived, so four units of red cells, four units of FFP, and one of platelets, Um, the cryoprecipitate wasn't ready yet. Uh, We collected a a blood sample to send off for a rotum, which is where they can test um, the patient's clotting factors and coagulation profile so that we can better tailor the massive transfusion towards that patient's needs. Uh, right. Those bloods take about forty-ish minutes to come back. So in the meantime, we continue with our massive transfusion, pro- transfusion protocol and what products come with that. Do you have that uh, in
1: uh, ED, Daniel? Do you have the Rhodamine tech stuff in emergency, or do you send it no, up to theatre?
0: We we have to send it up to either theatre ICU or there's one in the lab. Uh, that's yep. something we are looking into, maybe getting in the ED so there's a less of a delay to that. Yeah. That
1: cool. Way. Thanks, bro. Interesting.
0: That's right. Uh, So, yeah, and then about 650, the patient was still unstable despite the massive transfusion. Um, His EFAS was negative, but they decided – so they decided to send him to our hybrid suite, which is our Raptor suite, which is a combination of theatre and interventional radiology so that they can properly investigate where the main cause of this patient's bleeding was, whether it was the pelvis or the big lacerations and wounds in the leg or long bone fractures or um, whether it was something intra abdominally Uh, So the patient was escorted there, the remaining units of Massive Transfusion Protocol that weren't transfused yet were escorted with the patient and handed over to the anaesthetic nurse in in the Raptor suite Uh, and the cold chain information was handed over with that. So they took that uh, whiteboard with them and then showed them the tally of the blood products. Um, So by the time the patient arrived in the Raptor theater suite, they'd received a total of 10 units of red cells, eight units of FFP and one unit of platelets. Um, Then looking at the operation report, because they'd left ED, I looked at the operation report, and that patient received a further eight units of red cells, seven units of FFP, 25 units of cryoprecipitate, and Mm -hmm. they also had some five litres of crystalloid intraoperatively. Yeah. Mm ended up doing okay the next day he went to theater again for an incision from his perianal wound through the natal cleft to the upper outer quadrant of the right buttock um, dissection down to the gluteal cavity and they evacuated a one liter clot from there um they ended up having to do skin grafting to his whole leg he had a stoma formed on his abdomen um and yeah the the wound extended from like the front of the thigh all the way around to the back of the thigh and up to up the back a little bit as well it was it was a really big wound um yeah i i can still picture it now <laughs> and it was a decent decent wounds that this patient had but like yeah. looking at the progress i saw some progress um, images and it was healing really nicely he had some external fixation devices in it on it for a while on his limb uh but yeah. then yeah, watching it heal um with the skin grafts and stuff it was really good um it was amazing how it can look so good after looking so bad yeah um, yeah uh this patient yeah. progressed um like his haemoglobin continued to be low while he was in icu and plastics wanted his HB to be greater than 90 but it was only 69 but you uh, were concerned about uh transfusion related lung injury uh which yeah. is a with lots of blood transfusions being um, administered. So um, we were happy with a lower HB uh, and we just had to closely monitor that. Uh, Some of the complications from his case, he ended up getting a DVT and a PE, and that is a risk when you've got somebody that's not mobile after having multiple blood transfusions and having tranexamic acid to stop the bleeding. Uh, There is uh, evidence that they can cause a risk of getting a clot. Um, So he had preventative measures put in place Um, once that was identified and before that as well, but he still did develop that. And then he was in uh, the hospital for three months. After two months in the hospital and not being vaccinated for COVID, he actually got a hospital-acquired COVID infection. Uh, Yeah, it was so unfortunate for him. Um, One of the patients on the ward had COVID, and so then he was considered a close contact. And then, yeah, three days later, he tested positive. Um, well, he was lucky he was asymptomatic for the whole time, um, right. but still, having a hospital with quite COVID uh, wasn't really what he needed after this yeah. major incident, yeah. Not at all. He did get a, an acute kidney injury and had a bit of rhabdo and renal failure, uh, but then that all got managed and improved, and he was actually discharged uh, three months after arriving to a rehab facility uh, up, up the coast, close to where his family lives. So he had a really good outcome, and like when... When you see somebody come in, you hear that their blood pressure was in the 40s and you see them after six units of blood with their blood pressure in the 50s and like that gas result, you think, oh boy, this patient's not going to make it. And then to see this patient have a good outcome and walk out of the hospital and he's ambulating and everything. It's just, yeah, it tells me that what we do in emergency does help and does work and yeah giving that many blood products can hold risk for the patient and complications but it was necessary to save his life and it has in this case so that was a really good case
1: man that's crazy dan like you you know six points like that ph you just think how is that you know like it's so rare with a ph that bad and and you know like you said before a big extenuating wound with you know multiple blood products and it's still got a blood pressure of 50 like you know yeah. like you said you've, you've you've sat there before in that resource bay and seen so many people not make it through um that's right. you know I mean?
0: yeah that's like when you have a cardiac arrest and you see a gas and the pH is 6.9 you're thinking oh uh how long have we been going has the yeah. reverse here but you're thinking is this a survivable blood gas and yeah, yeah like to see this patient survive was yeah, really good yeah
1: I liked how you raised too, um transimic acid. And I guess the other one to think about too is um, calcium um, with blood products as well. It's always been beneficial, a bit of calcium gluconate as well. Um, yeah, we
0: actually have transimic acid and calcium on the top of our blood fridge, which is actually where we keep our blood coordinator phone. So you just yeah. walk in and those vials of medication are there next to the blood coordinator phone as a prompt to be administering them when you're administering lots of blood products.
1: So good, Dan. Just so, yeah, I know, because I know they added that one um, I was talking to someone in the last podcast, and he was saying that he had a, a guy with a really low calcium level who was like, you know, hypertensive in shock. And they said that they corrected his calcium, and you know, yeah. they they basically turned his inotropes down from half just because he was so hypocalcemic. Once he got calcium, it just had yeah. such a profound impact. Um, that's really cool, Dan. Um, what else? Um, what are some other main things you found in your study that you really liked, Dan? What was like um that you took oh, out of it? Main, yeah, like
0: our main outcomes was our wasted rates did drop. So our aim was to drop them by twenty percent. They actually dropped by thirty-eight percent. Um, oh. so they dropped from wasting around fourteen units per month to eight point six units per month. Um, so thirty-eight percent improvement was good. So there's still work to be done, but that's a really good improvement at the start. Our clinical incidences went down from um uh, down by 40% as well so we had 40% reduction in clinical incidences and the cost the you know how we wasted $17,000 worth of blood well we saved $9,200 worth after yeah. this um this role so i guess um good outcomes in that regard so reduced clinical incidences and reduced wastage which was the key role but i've also noticed the relationship with blood bank has improved um they contact us earlier, we have a better relationship with them. And it's always better if you've got all the teams working together um, cool. trying to manage these critically ill patients. We're working with them on other projects now, such as getting a new blood fridge that has RFID tagging capability so that we can mm-hmm. further try and impact um, our cold chain management. Um, and then also we're working a little bit with theatre as well about maybe seeing if they could implement a blood coordinator role so that our blood coordinator could hand over to theirs, because that's still a point where sometimes there's some wastage. We send it up there and hand it over, but then they don't then put it in their fridge if they transfuse it. So that's something we are working on with theater. Um, And also I've heard that there's going to be a new critical bleeding protocol due to be released by Lifeblood late this year. And that's going to incorporate new evidence in the literature, which is mostly around earlier fibrinogen use and the use of uh, Rotem to guide your your transfusion and what you're gonna be giving these patients. So we'll be able to update our protocols, Uh, but also I found a gap that we don't have a pediatric MTP protocol and we don't have one for postpartum hemorrhage that's separate to our adult one. And there's evidence that they might need fibrinogen earlier than the other MTP cases. So that's something that we're gonna work on after we've been looking into this project, yeah
1: that's awesome mate like that's so good like and it's so good that it's it's in australia doing all this stuff mate like you're in sydney um australia you're you know implementing something that is you know it's a big deal uh and it's also a, a position in the sense that it's put in a critical environment like you know not being rude but so often we can do studies where the environment can be i guess less critical but like you guys are making decisions in a patient's life that really it really matters um and you, you know you're taking on like a hard task if that makes sense um yeah. with a lot of people in a room you know resource base can be packed um and then to have that role you could, you could be quite nervous in that role if you know but you've done all the tra- like you said you equip the people to have the training it also yeah. helps them as a clinician as well
0: yeah that's right it makes them feel more comfortable in such a high pressure situation like i said they're a high pressure resource these critically bleeding patients needing an mtp are the sickest we see um, so yeah, you need to have your wits about you, but having something that's easy to follow does help. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Dan, is there anything else you want to add um, that you found from your study or that you think is important about MTP?
0: Um, no, I think that pretty much covers everything. Um, like magic transfusion, yeah, it can hold risk and everything, but you can see from that case that it does, um, it can save lives. So yeah, I just recommend everyone to look into their protocol, know it well. Um, and then yeah, I think that, yeah, your patients will have good outcomes if you can implement things to try and keep keep them safer and, yeah, not waste blood products that have been freely donated by the public, yeah, Willing yeah. For,
1: for smaller hospitals that don't activate the MTP as much uh, and they find a patient, find themselves having to m- activate the MTP, um, what would you, what would be your recommendation? Um, would it be to maybe keep a whiteboard in the back room just to tally the, a whiteboard to the left to tally the, MTP, or maybe to try and call for an extra nurse to try and be in control of that communication. Just for you know, what would you? What would be your recommendations?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Trialing in your smaller sites, the different things that we tried. So like like I said, we started with that sticker, and that didn't work, so we got rid of that. So just always with us looking at ways of improving things, you should start small, test things to see if they work, and then if they don't work, yeah, don't use them, and then try the next thing. Uh, just mm. always try try a little tests to see what's going to work for your facility and your department. Um, I think that, yeah, the whiteboard was successful, but something portable so that it can go with the patient when the patient leaves your department was found to be more uh, effective than just writing on the static whiteboard in the room. Um, And then also, yeah, having the timer attached to the blood really helped. And yeah, having a person that's a go-to. So we bought them a phone, we gave them an action card. So something that's easy to follow. Having a pathway or a protocol to reduce that cognitive load, that really helps in a recess situation.
1: Mm. Dan, I guess, you know, yourself being in ED, like in sort of closing, you've been in ED for, you know, 12 years in like, you know, pretty crazy environments. How, you know, in the current workplace, that's most, you know, emergency pumps at the moment are overworked, doing overtime, like you told me recently, you just finished a double shift. How do you cope, Dan? How do you what keeps you sort of um you know on the straight and narrow mate how do you how do you do it
0: well i think that because like i've been here for 12 years it's because i love emergency and i'm passionate about it i think that's what keeps me coming back um i if i think about other places that i could work i guess i'm a bit of a workaholic so i could work anywhere. but um, i do I do really like this type of work and I can see that we can make a difference in people's lives. And so mm-hmm. that's what we're coming back. How do I cope with the stress? Well, I've got mm-hmm. a good support network at home. I like to Exercise. I know you like to go running. I don't like running like you. Uh, but I like to go to the gym. I like to play tennis. And um, also, I've got my family. And also, I've got a couple of friends at work that I can talk to as well. Because I can't yeah. tell like my family everything because they might get a bit emotional because they're not in the medical field. Um, if you yeah. tell them a bad case, it's not going to be go well. But if you can find somebody at work to be your go-to person to be able to talk through and debrief cases with, then that really helps. And having good team debriefs after major resuscitations at work really helps as well it's really the mm-hmm. team that keeps you coming back um, yes the work is exciting and fun but it can be overwhelming and um, full-on uh, so to, to yeah to keep you coming back if you have a good team um, good morale and you're trying to do things outside of work with the team as well um, so we try and run some sport days in our department where we go out and we play against the paramedics versus them in soccer or we go and play Oztag or basketball, we've done all these different things and that really helps um, keeping you coming back as well because you enjoy the people that you're working with and you're all out there to help each other out.
1: Love it, Dan. It's so good, bro. It's, good. it's refreshing to meet people like yourself that are still been working in an environment for 12 years, enjoy it, find um, you know passion in what they do, but also can realise that um, you've got to have other avenues to deal with what you see like exercise, friends, um, those sort of things. I think that's really important for people that are listening.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. yeah. It's important, don't, man. don't be afraid to step out of your comfort zone. Like I said, with the disaster nursing, like being deployed to the bushfires, that was one of the best experiences I had. I was still using my emergency nursing, but then I was helping people in need in the bushfires down the south coast. And that was that was amazing. Like when we go to the city to surf, you're seeing patients coming in, they're pale, they're diaphoretic, they look like they're gonna arrest. And then you give them some treatment, ice packs, fluids, sugar, and then within half an hour, they're walking out looking a million bucks. Because they're young, yeah. fit, healthy people, they just overdid it, you know? Being able to make a difference and see that difference, it really brings your passion back and just makes you remember why you became a nurse to help people, yeah. Uh,
1: thank you so much for your time, Dan, I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks, Ben. It was good to talk to you again and catch up.
1: I don't know about you, frothers, but I'm just like, how did this dude survive? Um, anyway, sometimes I'm surprised when I hear about people's injuries, uh, and then I see them, you know, months later, uh, and see their recovery, and it just shows you that all those little things have an impact. Um, I think it was really cool when Dan was talking about blood products. I mean, these things save people's lives, um, and so it's important that we, you know, steward these things well, as you know, um, as clinicians as well. You know, even though that we do have, you know, blood products, we need to give a lot of them. We've still got to make sure that we're doing it, you know, um, with the right patients. We've got to make sure also that we're not wasting them and that we're returning them when we need to. Um, You know, we we look around and read the news and we see that, you know, there is a shortage of blood products around. And so I guess it's important as clinicians that we look after what we've been given as well. Um, So often not in an emergency, you know, we're messy and we leave things on the table and we can forget things. Um, but it is important sometimes to give, and I think what Daniel's raised here about giving that coordinator a role, um, I think that's really good. Um, maybe what do you do in your EDs? You know, do you have someone who you know is keeping track of the blood products, or is, do you have somebody who has got it written down on a whiteboard? Or maybe you you know need to think about that when you run a big soon soon, um, just to make sure that we're keeping track of how much our patient has had, because um, in the heat of the moment, you know, with chest drains and you know pelvic binders and patients being intubated. Um, we can really forget about what the patients had um, It sort of shows how important it is to have a scribe or having someone who can coordinate just the blood products themselves um, So that's really important. I love this stuff. Hey legends If you want to get in contact with me, you can you can look at my Instagram edgm underscore podcast You can send me a message. I will reply. Um, I love all the feedback I get I love when you post it on your stories on your Instagram or even when I get a direct message Um, I love just even interacting with everybody so I just want to say thank you it wouldn't be possible without people Following um, and actually listening to it as well and giving me feedback as well. So thank you so much legends I love you all you Hey frothers remember we're getting close to the end of the year I've got some awesome patient stories coming up uh, and some awesome episodes to end the year Um, also um, You know look after yourself. It's been a tough year Um, all of us have worked really really hard Um, So make sure you're booking those holidays, even midweek. Make sure you're taking those Mondays and Tuesdays um, to relax. Um, Stay in your lane. Um, Remember that um, it's so good when you just be yourself. Um, It has a huge impact on who you are. Uh, And I love you all. Have a great day. The EDGM podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which this recording is occurring today, the Garawal people, and pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging.